With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Also, there ain't nothing more to life important to me than me, dang. <laughs> <laughs> Happy holidays. I'm playing way too much Red Dead Redemption of late. So far, my favorite is uh, lassoing a clansman, hog-tying him, and shooting him in the head, and then looting his body. Welcome, welcome, ladies and gentlemen. We are back. It's been a while since we've done an episode of the Let's Get Weird Sports Podcast. But we are back. I am your host, Travis Miller. Casey is not dead. I know he was the one that originally did the voiceovers and hosting of this, but he is busy dispensing drinks in West Lafayette. Lafayette. So we will have me and we will have our other usual guest. Paul Banks is with us from the Sports Bank. How are you doing, Paul? I'm doing good. Uh, happy holidays, season's greeting, Festivus for the rest of us, Merry Christmas. Breaking out the scotch, I heard you say, tonight on a Tuesday in December. Yes, on a random Tuesday in December, I've got some Giant Walker Black going. So There we go, watching the Cherubundi Tart Cherry Bowl. And we're going to be talking some baseball here in the dead of winter. Some weird baseball. I know that we've, we've talked about a lot of baseball before on this with the Black Sox in the 1919 World Series. We've talked about the uh, infamous Disco Demolition Night and everything else. But this one may be one of the strangest stories that we've uh, that we've ever dealt with here in regards to the Let's Get Weird podcast, wouldn't you say, Paul? Yeah, it's definitely up there. It um, I've I've noticed that we kind of with baseball we've done the turn of the century, early 1900s, and this guy is probably the greatest character of that era that we'll absolutely. Ever- uh, as, as you know, we're all fans of the dollop here and, uh, we, we have to give credit to those guys, Dave Anthony and Gareth Reynolds. They're the ones that have kind of started this road down for many of these podcasts. And they're the one that alerted me to today's subject. And they did a podcast on him. One of their first shows was on Rube Waddell. Uh, so w- what do you know about the Rube? Well, I in listening to the dollop on him, and then reading up on it, and then reading up on the Rube, I, I thought of that uh, Wesley Snipes Robert De Niro movie, The Fan. I have not seen that one. No. Well, there's a scene. It's 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 a bad movie. It, it's not one I would recommend. But there's a scene. I mean, Wesley Snipes is is the baseball star. Robert De Niro is the stalker fan. And there's a scene where he says something about. You know, pitchers are cerebral. They're intellectuals. They're heady. They're the ones who think. And sluggers are just, you know, dumb oafs who just pound the ball. And what we're going to get into is a man who definitely violates that rule, if you believe that rule exists, because this was a man who was about as uncerebral and about as low intellectual as you can get. (laughs) I would describe him as... um, Cletus, the slack-jawed yokel on The Simpsons, 
if he was like 6'4", 250. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things to put the Rube here into perspective is uh, at the time he was one of the most dominant pitchers in all of Major League Baseball. Uh, He uh, is still up there in terms of career wins. He finished with almost 200 career wins in a very abbreviated career because he was only... He was only in the majors from ninth or from eighteen ninety seven to nineteen ten, so for about twelve thirteen seasons there because he made his major league debut in late eighteen ninety seven, but in that time he won one hundred and ninety three games, and he was considered one of the best pitchers in baseball, along with another dude uh, who is mildly famous for pitching, uh, Cy Young. You might have heard of him. Yeah, it's weird that we. That Cy Young has an award named after him, and we all we know all about him. But Rube Waddell was his contemporary. In fact, there was they went toe to toe for twenty innings in a game once, and he was <laughs> rivaling him. Yeah, the other thing I love how it's just a completely different era where Rube Waddell pitched seventeen innings in the first half of a doubleheader, and then he pitched the second game. <laughs> So let, let's begin with uh, let's begin with the beginning here on the Rube. Uh, looking at his Wikipedia page, this this will begin to give you an idea of what kind of character he was. Uh, his Wikipedia first paragraph: Born in 1876 outside of Bradford, Pennsylvania, Waddell grew up in the country. Biographer Alan Levy writes that Waddell was quote a decidedly different sort of child. At the age of three, he wandered over to a local fire station and stayed for several days. He did not attend school very often, but he was considered to be literate. He strengthened his arm as a child by throwing rocks at birds he encountered while plowing the family's land. He also worked on mining and drilling sites as a youngster, which helped his conditioning. So he already has a touch of Shoeless Joe Jackson there in that he worked in a mine as a child. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, talk about a different era, just in the rural parts of the industrial. He also has a touch of Luke Skywalker. He's like, when when Luke said he was on um, Tatooine and he would just shoot rats with his T-30-whatever. <laughs> I mean, this guy's throwing rocks at birds. I mean, isn't that always, like, one of the first signs of of a psycho killer when they torture animals and... I always felt Luke Skywalker got a pass on that because that is kind of nuts that he would do that. Yeah, this is true. Uh, I'm also going to read from uh, the United States of Absurdity here, which is the book that Gareth Reynolds and Dave Anthony published uh, that's based on many of their dial-up podcasts. Here is what they had to say about the Rube. Cy Young is considered the most ba- by most baseball historians to be the best pitcher of all time. However, on the dollop, our pick for this honor is a particularly unknown pitcher from the same era named Rube Waddell. In a straight-up comparison, the Rube is arguably a better pitcher than Cy Young. So why you don't know about why don't you know about one of the most feared pitchers of all time? Because he was an idiot. As a boy, the Rube gained arm strength through the common pastime of throwing rocks at birds. In college, yes, he somehow went to college, despite never going to, <laughs> to school often. The Rube would celebrate three strikeouts in an inning by either cartwheeling, walking on his hands, or somersaulting his way back to the dugout. He signed his first major league contract for $500 with the Louisville Colonia, or Colonels in 1898. 
but after just two days, he was fined fifty dollars for excessive drinking, and he quit the team in response. <laughs> I love that. I love how he just basically got there and then quit and then had to go home. Like, <laughs> he showed up to games like right before they started, like a few minutes to go, and he wouldn't enter through the players' entrance. He would walk through the stands. And he would often walk through the stands while drinking, I believe. And take fans. He would drink fans' beers. He would eat their hot dogs. Sometimes <laughs> he would start fights with them. Uh, after after uh, leaving the Louisville Colonels, he went to Detroit where he had his longest major league tenure to that point. Nine days. On the ninth <laughs> day, he was fined for playing with kids in a sandlot. So he quit again. During this time, athletes weren't paid much and need to work in the offseason. So that winter... The Rube worked, wrestled alligators in a traveling circus for income. <laughs> How is there not a 30 for 30 on this guy? How is there not a biopic on this guy? <laughs> I mean, I... Like, and how did they fix his grades to get him in to play college baseball when he was such an astoundingly egregious idiot? <laughs> Uh, it was in the late 1800s. I don't think that uh, I don't think that they cared so much about grades because this was around the time that Purdue got its moniker of the Boilermakers, and we allegedly hired engineers and brawny uh, blacksmiths from a local boiler sh- uh, train shop to play football for us. And it was, we were more concerned about them being able to play football than actually going to class or anything. And that was probably well, the last time that we were accused of having a, a, a recruiting scandal. That's the etymology of the Boilermaker. That's the history of the Boilermaker's mascot. Yes, uh, that is the history. Is a, I believe we were playing Wabash College, and we weren't known as the Boilermakers. And we beat up on Wabash, and some uh, newspaper editor in Crawfordsville was upset about it and said that we used our brawny Boilermakers from a local train repair shop to beat up on Wabash College. One of many reasons that Wabash College sucks. Well, you know, when there's moonlight on the Wabash. Well, I've always had a, uh, I've always been against Wabash College because from my time at Purdue, they would regularly drive the 20, 25 miles up from Crawfordsville and hang out at our bars and hit on Purdue girls because Wabash is an all-male college. So it's not my fault that I didn't choose to go to an all-male college and needed to go to another college to hit on women. So stay out of our bars. Yeah, see, we had the reverse at Illinois. Um, Eastern Illinois had like 60%. (laughs) So they would come up to U of I. Our our, uh, sound engineer, Juan, just said in our chat here, if you lost a woman to a Wabash boy, you lost at life. And I've got to agree with him there. Well, like Tom Petty said, even the losers get lucky sometimes. <laughs> so let, let's go back to the Rube here. Early in his career, he gets the nickname of the Sousepaw because he spent his entire first signing bonus on a drinking bench. Now, I want to see a major leaguer do that these days. <laughs> Actually, that is where we have... Um, well, you know, it, it's funny you bring up uh, a baseball player, a booze hound, because... In uh, modern Cubs history, there are two players who have really stood out above the rest as being um, regulars in the old gin man. One of them was Mark Grace. And uh, Gracie is, legend has it, invented 
invented the term slump buster. And Mark Grace's bar, like, I mean, this, this wasn't just like Mark Grace's bar. People would know that you would go see him there. Like if you were going, if you were a student and you were going to see a professor at office hours, Mark Grace would be at Durkin's, which is, I, I'm, I think it still exists. I'm not sure. Maybe it's something else today, but it's on uh, diversity and Halstead and, it is the biggest Purdue bar in Chicago, so there is our Purdue connection. I'm not sure if that is true. They invented the term slumbuster, but that seems to be one. He, he seems to get credit for it. And then the other one, when I was listening to the dollop and they talked about the Rube tending bar, I couldn't help but think of Kyle Farnsworth because if you go to an establishment on Ashland called Ties Till Four, again, if it still exists, maybe it does. And it's a 4 a.m. bar, so that's why, hence the name. They've got a, they've got a big frame of a signed Farnsworth jersey right behind the bar because you could go there and see Farnsworth bartending with regularity. Also, not far from where Ryan Dempster lives, because uh, Ryan Dempster is a neighbor to one of my closest friends, and we usually come out. His they they have like a live band karaoke jam every summer. And, you know, it's family-friendly. I mean, yeah, people are drinking and stuff, but there's kids and stuff, and it takes over the whole block. And we've, I've got some good video of, of Dempster and, well, of just of everybody if they're, they're doing karaoke. Good times. I just assume that Dempster lived near the uh, Dempster spot, spot on the L. It would make a lot of sense, wouldn't it? It would, it would almost be, like, too perfect. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Next time you come to Chicago, though, let's go to Durkin's. And then I want to take you to the site of the St. Valentine's Day Massacre because it's walking distance. And I oh, want you to Yeah, and I want you to see how it is so much nothing today because they made zero effort to try to preserve anything. Well, it's been almost a hundred years. <laughs> so where where we last left the Rube here, we're now up to the eighteen ninety nine season, and here's also what the United States of Absurdity has to say on him. In the 1899 season, he quickly became a fan favorite for his wild behavior. The Rube would arrive just before a game in his street clothes, enter through the spectators' entrance, and walk to the field from the stands. As he walked past the fans, he would drink people's beer and eat their hot dogs. If fans didn't like that, he would fight them. (laughs) (laughs) He would also change into his uniform as he made his way from the stands to the mound. This guy was a legend. Opposing fans found ways to throw off his simple-minded mega-athlete. For instance, sometimes during games, fans would hold up puppies, and the Rube loved puppies. So they would have no choice but to race over, he would have no choice but to race over and pet them during the game. They were puppies. The Rube was also known to abruptly leave in the middle of the game, when he was pitching, to go fishing. But of all the things that diverted the Rube's attention, nothing turned his crank like fire trucks. If a fire truck drove by the stadium, the Rube would actually run off the field and chase it like a dog was, like a dog, uh, and would stop the would stop a game to like the dog. He would stop the game to pet. <laughs> maybe it's too bad. Ancestry.com wasn't around. Like maybe the guy was like part beagle or something. <laughs> maybe he's like, what are those checkered dogs that fire departments always have those like are Dalmatians, right? Yeah. Yeah. Dalmatians. Like maybe he was part that because the fact that he was so enthralled by fire trucks, that is, I'm just amazed that somebody like this had the success and money that he did and didn't have a more 
disastrous life. Well, it's in we would need ancestry.com also to trace how many children he may or may not have had because he never knew how many times he actually got married. Um, I believe <laughs> I believe it was mentioned that he would forget that he was married to somebody and then just get married again. <laughs> and he was busted on bigamy because he forgot to divorce his his other wife. Also, he excelled at early on. He wasn't aware of the rules of the game. So he treated baseball like it was dodgeball. Like we would call it Indian tags as a kid where you whip the ball at a person to get them out. <laughs> he believed that was legit. Like you could do that. You could just whip the ball at the runner and then he was out. <laughs> so, so you might be wondering... Well, how this guy hung around in the majors for so long, though. Uh, go, going back uh, to a little bit more here on the dollop, uh, the, the Rue went into the 1900 season with an ERA of 2.7, which is really good. Uh, as you mentioned, though, he had a high rate of errors. It's not known, exa- not known exactly why he did, but it may have something to do with the Rube's pregame w- ritual of pounding booze at a local tavern. The Rube was later suspended in the 1900 season because he threatened to shoot his manager full of holes. But he was just so f***ing good. One day, the Rube pitched a 17-inning game, then pitched another full game later that afternoon, completely shutting out the other team. He pitched a 26-inning one-day shutout, all while having a gerbil's brain. The Rube led the league in strikeouts for five seasons while Cy Young was pitching. The 1905 season saw an epic duel between Cy Young and the Rube in a 20-inning throw fest. Neither one of them gave up a run, but the Rube, not Cy, got the game ball. It was the most sought-after game ball in years. But, of course, he gave it away for free liquor at a bar after the game. <laughs> yeah, it's almost unfair that this guy isn't known more. And that, that is the thing, is he was ridiculously good. He, he won 20 games four times. He won 19 games six times. He has 2,316 career strikeouts, has a career ERA of 2.16, and finished 193 and 143. And, and those are, he actually did end up getting into the Baseball Hall of Fame. Uh, the Veterans Committee put him there in 1946. So he is at least recognized. He is at least recognized for his talent. And part of it was he just had one heck of a fastball that he would just blow by people. He was just kind of a, I mean, how tall, what was his height and weight? Um, I'm not sure what it says here, uh, what he was listed at, because I don't think they took those measurements. Uh, but he was also known for his control because he had a strikeout to walk ratio of almost three to one and he had a couple other pitches, had a good curveball and a screwball, which were ridiculous. And he was the second pitcher ever to strike out three batters on nine pitches in one inning. He was the 1905 triple crown winner for pitching wins leader. I know he set the strike, the single season strikeout record when he had stood 61 years. He struck out 16 guys in a game, so that was a record that stood for a long time. And he did briefly pitch for the Cubs, apparently. Because yes. he, was, he was sold to the Chicago Orphans in 1901. Now that, I wondered to myself, how did they end up with such a horrible name like the Chicago Orphans? <laughs> That would be like if you had a team today, like the Chicago Latchkey Kids. <laughs> and then they have a cross-tone classic. Their arch rivals, the Chicago Helicopter Parents. <laughs> Here's some more interesting stuff. 
uh, after the 1900 season or 1902 season, Connie Mack uh, asked him to come play for the Philadelphia Athletics football team, despite having never played football. And the anecdote from there. There was a little fellow from Wanamaker's department store who asked for the job of quarterback, Connie Mack said. I don't think he weighed more than 140 pounds. Well, the first practice, Waddell tackled him and broke his leg. It was the first inkling that uh, John Scheib and I had that players could be badly hurt in football, and we got Rube out of there without delay. He was supposed to be pretty good, but we never found out. So this was a, <laughs> this gigantic, bumbling idiot hodor of a baseball player. They tried to turn him into a football player, and everybody's like, oh, this is a tor- terrible idea because he's going to kill somebody. You know, our sound in- engineer, Juan, is chiming in with some comments, but I, I don't know how to work the Skype app enough. I can't read what he says, but he just said something about that'll be our the topic of our next podcast. He says baseball will be more interesting if you can throw the ball at the runners. That'll be in our next episode. <laughs> oh, I, yeah, I'm with him on that. <laughs> so in 1904, he struck out 349 batters, which, as you said, was a major league record. It was 110 more than runner-up Jack Chesbro, and no other pitcher compiled consecutive 300 strikeout seasons until Sandy Koufax in 1965 and 66. Uh, Waddell was the opposing pitcher in Cy Young's perfect game and even uh, provided the final out on a fly ball. And he still holds the AL single season strikeout record for a left-handed pitcher. So this is a record he's hold for 113 seasons. It is stood because of how good he was. And considering how, how few innings and how few strikeouts many power pitchers get these days, it's probably one he's going to hold for a while. Yeah, I would actually love to see all these stats. I want to see the pitch counts because, like, today, once a guy gets, like, over 100 pitch count in pitch count, they're ready to pull him. And I think Nolan Ryan had a 175 pitch count game in the 70s. But if this guy's going a double header and he did 17 innings in the first one, this guy must have had a pitch count in the 300s somewhere. Uh, in 1905, as you said, he won the Triple Crown. Went 27 and 10, 287 strikeouts, and a 1.48 ERA, his fourth consecutive year over 20 more wins. And his drinking problem was exacerbated by his horrific marriage, his second of three known wives. <laughs> the known wives, yeah, that's the key word there, known. <laughs> but he had such an amazing life off the field. He. The, the legend has it, he saved 13 lives. Yes, because he being a lifesaver. And it was part of loving to hang out with firemen and fire trucks. He loved going around and he would regularly save people. Uh... <laughs> he even was on a boat when someone screamed for their life. And it was somebody on the boat screaming. But he thought it was somebody in the water who was drowning. So he jumped in the water and he rescued a stray log. So a here, log he thought was a person. So he, here are the final two paragraphs from uh, the United States of Absurdity. When all was said and done, the Rube had accidentally shot a friend in the hand, been bitten by a lion, saved 13 people's lives, earned rave reviews for a vaudeville show where he was allowed to improvise all of his lines, and made it to the World Series but was unable to play because of an injury he picked up after fighting a teammate. And he has no idea how many women he had married. Take that, Cy Young. 
We dedicate this book to him because he's our favorite character and he is America personified. <laughs> he was quick to anger and full of booze and you wouldn't want to live in a world without him. He made Shoeless Joe Jackson look like a Rhodes Scholar pretty much. <laughs> he was a man who was bored on Friday the 13th and died on April Fool's Day. <laughs> And see, I had forgotten about the whole he was in a vaudeville show where he basically, he couldn't learn, learn his lines. So they just let him say whatever he wanted and had to act around it. Unfortunately, like most American heroes, the Rube died young. Uh, in the early 1900s, medicine being what it was or what it was at the time, he started to have some injury problems in the early 1900s. Uh, he got sent to the St. Louis Browns because everybody at this era ends up with the wayward franchise that was the St. Louis Browns. And, uh, he... The Baltimore Orioles today? Uh, yes, they are the Baltimore Orioles today. The Browns owner, to make sure that, uh, he stayed out of trouble, actually hired him as a hunter over the winters of 1918, or 1908 and 1909. The uh, just guy to that he threatened him- to kill... Yes. Is that frowned upon in a major league baseball franchise? Like, if you threaten to kill your boss, is that bad? (laughs) Seems bad, yes. (laughs) Uh, He finished his career in 1910 with uh, Newark in the Eastern League and never played another major league game. He unfortunately died in a sanitarium in San Antonio, Texas. On April 1st, 1914, at the age of 37, Uh, he caught pneumonia. Uh, As you said, he loved to save lives. He was helping save the city of Hickman, Kentucky, which how he ends up in Hickman, Kentucky in 1912, nobody knows. I mean, who would want to be in Hickman, Kentucky in 1912? Come on. He caught pneumonia, uh, caught it again in 1913, and eventually uh, developed to tuberculosis and he died in a sanitarium at the age of 37. But this man, <laughs> he survived a lion bite and he wrestled alligators. God damn it. Couldn't <laughs> overcome pneumonia. That, well, I don't know. I mean, pneumonia can be quite serious in certain cases. I shouldn't um, make light of that, but yeah, I mean, you get my point though. <laughs> there, there's another wonderful, uh, little story here about him when he was uh playing a game in detroit he actually had his outfielders come in and come in close and sit down on the grass because he was going to strike out the side uh and also that was awesome yeah i love that part of the story that's amazing pitching an exhibition game in memphis he once took the field alone with his catcher for the last three innings with two out in the ninth he his catcher dropped the third strike, allowing the batter to reach first. The next two hitters blooped pop flies that fell just behind the mound. Despite running himself ragged, Waddell eventually struck out the last man. He also enjoyed cartwheeling and somersaulting between the dugout and the mound. Uh, Which actually reminds me of a modern-day pitcher with a Adele. Remember him, the Cubs pitcher? Oh, yes, yes. He would always do um, – he had some weird thing where he would skip to the mound. And he would always like do some kind of weird like jump move over the baseline, and then he would draw three crosses in the back of the mound. So he was 
kind of a very watered down modern day Rube Waddell, at least in terms of mound to dugout protocol. Yes, and uh, and, and that's the thing is. They're not sure exactly what was wrong uh, with Rube Waddell. I'm sure back in the day they would say he was touched in the head. Um, they believe that he maybe had a developmental disability, mental retardation, autism, or ADD. Um, and you have all of those uh, combined with just a heroic level of drinking. <laughs> yeah, did, so did he, re- did he die of pneumonia or did he die of something related to alcoholism? Uh, tuberculosis, but uh, alcoholism definitely did not did not aid things in his career, his relationships, and everything else. Yeah, tuberculosis. I mean, at that time, was definitely a lot more serious. Yes, <laughs> but this guy, this guy's a hero. I mean, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I mean, I. The the great thing about the Rube is, it's like, where do you start and where do you end with him? I mean. I assuming I'm assuming that the character in Major League Two named the Rube was ba- named Rube was based on this guy. I mean, Woody Harrelson's character on Cheers, I can see some influence there. I mean, he was taken from us too young. Mm-hmm. So many great American heroes are, but he he lives on and how he's influenced so many. He well, this book that I'm reading, a fantasy land about. American reinvention and about disconnecting from reality. This was a man who really lived that. I think it's best summed up here. Baseball historian Lee Allen in the American League story writing, Waddell began the 1903 season sleeping in a firehouse in Camden, New Jersey and ended it tending a bar and attending bar in a saloon in Wheeling, West Virginia in between those events, he won 22 games for the Philadelphia Athletics, toured the nation in a melodrama called The Stain of Guilt, courted, married, and became separated from May Wynn Skinner of Lynn, Massachusetts, saved a woman from drowning, accidentally shot a friend through the hand, and was bitten by a lion. That's a year. <laughs> yeah, and that's just one year in his life. That's, that's a year. I mean, I don't care what you've done. That's a year. You can't top that. You just can't. That's why I'm just amazed that he didn't make it to 40 and that tuberculosis got him. When you think about the different wild animals he encountered and the hard living that he did. I mean, that was, I mean, him at 38, it's like Lindsay Lohan at 25 or something. Like, it's it's a life. It's many lives lived. I think I like to think that he died at the age of 37, mostly because what more was he going to do? <laughs> You know, so that, it, like, why is he not, not consider? Was he in the first class in, in Cooperstown? No, the first class was uh, thirty nine. He didn't go in until no. the Veterans Committee in forty six, and I believe, yeah, nineteen thirty nine was the first class. So, it, it, pretty early on, he went in, but uh, he did have to get the special kind of exemption by the uh, in consideration by the Veterans Committee. But as someone who was considered Cy Young's peer. History has not really treated him as such, and they I wish they did. Yeah, and uh, he had, it looks like there were a lot of, uh, yeah, he went in with Frank Chance, Johnny Evers, Miller Huggins, and Ed Walsh. Big Ed Walsh, and Tinkers to Evers to Chance. Well, that's a pretty good, um, that's good, that's good company right there. Oh, absolutely, yes. But uh, it, it, I just can't imagine having a guy 
even remotely close to this in today's day and age in baseball. There's, there's no way this would happen again. None. Yeah, I mean, this was the days before brand managers and publicists and agents and, you know, because somebody like the Rube, it would have started right away. I mean, they they would have the marketers would have gotten him so early on, early on in life and and probably would have kept him in line. <laughs> and then he's got like club media relations and other teams. Just he's just he, the most interesting man in baseball history. I think about the only athlete I can think of that's even remotely close to that's even remotely close to him. There is maybe Rob Gronkowski for uh, the way that he marketed himself and had those party cruises and stuff a few years ago, and. <laughs> Just the whole big dumb idiot athlete, and even then, Gronkowski isn't even close to doing a tenth of what the room has done. Yeah, because Gronkowski can definitely um, he can tone it down when he wants to. Like when I think of early Gronkowski, when he tweeted that picture to Kate Upton where he's shirtless on the bed and he's got a giant candlestick over his uh, shorts, and he's supposed to like. Just to emulate the idea, like that's a schlong, like that Gronkowski has been watered down somewhat. <laughs> like early Gronkowski was definitely more like now we're getting Gronkowski with sour cream. To... <laughs> but I'm uh... with I, that's a great analogy. That's a great analogy in terms of the like lovable oath, the yeah, the big dumb idiot kind of thing. And it is, and it's, it's still not even close. I mean, as far as we know, Gronkowski's never played a game drunk or left a game to chase a fire truck. That's the thing I can't get over that. He hit the bars before the game. <laughs> there was one game where he actually passed out from being drunk. <laughs> I mean, this guy, he would have, he would have fitted right on like the 86 Mets or something. He would have made the 86 Mets look like choir boys. <laughs> So that that, ladies and gentlemen, is is the Rube. May God rest his soul. He he was a hero. I mean, wow! I, just, I can't believe that there was a character like that. And he is, yeah. <laughs> what do you say to that? Yeah, you, when you when you think about it, we know that he wasn't the the sharpest knife in the drawer. Do you think he? Do you think that gave him kind of license to be? You think, um, like Annie Savoy says in Bill Durham about the people who are cursed with self-awareness, maybe the fact that he wasn't self-aware too much, maybe that's why he he had the life that he did. I, I think it was that, and I think he was just a damn good pitcher at the time, too. <laughs> and as we've seen with many other athletes, if you are extremely good at your job, you can get away with a lot of stuff. Oh my God, that's been the story of in sports the last two years. Yeah, you're winning; they can overlook so much. Yeah. So uh, that, that would be. I mean, let's let's. I mean, what, who doesn't love puppies, right? Oh yes. So uh, that that's the Rube, and uh, I don't know how we can top that, but uh, I know you said you had a couple ideas for our next "Let's Get Weird Sports" podcast. Uh, what did you have? Well, I'm still waiting on that Tennessee book that I sent you the I sent you the publicist blurb on that. It still has not arrived, so I think we're gonna have to put that one off for a while. There's a, a couple different ideas out there, but I think the next one should be 
this would be our first Let's Get Weird sports podcast in which it would actually be something where I was there and experienced it firsthand. And it is the only soccer game in England history to be evacuated due to a bomb scare. Oh, yes. I remember you were there for that. That was the uh, Man United one, wasn't it? Yes, it was uh, the last day of the 2015-16 season. Bournemouth at Manchester United, and it just this, like everything on that trip kind of that relates to it. Like how I had bought a ticket weeks in advance, but I didn't have it until a guy at the hotel gives me a ticket to one of the suites, so I get like this awesome, you know, special upscale entrance, and then I never even see the pitch because we have to evacuate. Set against the political backdrop that went into that. Earlier on that same trip, I had a, a bottle thrown at me over this giant wall in Belfast called the Peace Wall. <laughs> so you've got, and then of course, you know, that the whole Belfast thing was about the IRA and the Ulster Unionists. So when the bomb threat came, a lot of people were actually worried that there was actually a lot of talk there at Old Trafford that. It could be related to the IRA, which it's interesting that during the Troubles, they never had any game anywhere in England evacuated over something like this. And then, of course, um, when I when I sent you that story, the one that I did for Red Eye, um, Red Eye not being the Fox News Channel program, but Red Eye, Chicago Tribune commuter paper, um, I sent you that and I told you about how the very first day of that trip I got into a Twitter fight with the Leprechaun Museum. <laughs> no, that's a trip. Uh, that's a trip. Twitter fight with the Leprechaun Museum, hooliganism, and Manchester United at the Theater of Dreams. Yes, I, I, I think that needs to be our next one. Not, uh, not I think we can do that one, especially since you've got firsthand knowledge of it and you were there for it. I mean, I promise our listeners, this isn't going to be like what I did on my summer vacation. What it is is going to be probably the best vacation I ever had, but definitely the one with the most drama and turmoil. <laughs> it's kind of like the, um, when Marge said uh, about Homer, he's like, only your father could take a job as a small town restaurant critic and end up the target of international assassins. <laughs> So there you have it. There you have it. Well, for Paul and myself, we thank you for listening to the Let's Get Weird podcast. And the next time you're having a drink, have a drink for the Rube. He's an American hero. And as uh, Dave Anthony and Gareth Reynolds said at the dollop, he is America. And so should you.